The cognitive dissonance and the trauma bond caused by abusive relationships are two of the most important topics to understand in the recovery process after narcissistic abuse. These concepts explain why victims stay in abusive relationships and why they return again and again to their abusers. As of right now, the top two episodes of my podcast are the ones on cognitive dissonance and the trauma bond. I keep seeing questions related to these topics on my YouTube videos and other social media, so I decided to make another episode combining and comparing these two topics for extra emphasis. In this episode, you'll find out about what happens if you don't work on dissolving the cognitive dissonance and breaking the trauma bond. You'll find out about how these two topics are related, as well as where they show up during the recovery after narcissistic abuse. You'll also get some tips to free yourself from both of these survival mechanisms caused by the trauma of abuse. This is Meredith Miller, and you're listening to the Inner Integration Podcast, where you can learn the mindsets and tools to self-heal after narcissistic abuse. If you don't work on healing from the cognitive dissonance and trauma bond, you'll get stuck in the repetition compulsion where you keep returning to past abusers. And remember, the average is seven times that a victim returns to their abuser. If you manage to go no contact with that abuser, but you don't heal from the cognitive dissonance and trauma bond, you'll still be at a higher risk of falling into another abuser who will likely show up in a more covert form than the last one meaning more difficult to notice and identify as abuse. The trauma bond is like a higher octave of the cognitive dissonance. The trauma bond is broken in the later part of stage two of the recovery, while the cognitive dissonance is dissolved during stage one. So the cognitive dissonance dissolves first, and later, as you work through the radical self-care required in stage two, you'll eventually have the opportunity to break the trauma bond to the original abuser in your life. In order to understand the trauma bond, first you'll need to see the connection with the cognitive dissonance. These are both survival mechanisms built into the primitive part of the human brain. That means, as messed up as it sounds logically, to be loyal to someone who hurts you, your brain is wired to bond with the abuser and empathize with the abuser in order to keep surviving. The cognitive dissonance occurs when we are trying to hold two opposing beliefs at the same time. This happens when we come across information that contradicts our beliefs or our worldview. The brain can't reconcile the two opposing thoughts. That contradiction causes an overload of anxiety, which then causes something like a short circuit in the brain, inducing a state of denial. Denial is the most primitive psychological defense mechanism available to the human mind. Denial keeps us locked in the comfort zone of fantasy, illusion, and toxic hope in order to avoid accepting the harsh reality of what we don't want to see. Denial is temporarily beneficial, but has long-term damaging effects when it's an obstacle to our healing and growth. How does the cognitive dissonance play out in an abusive relationship? Let's say you're with this abusive person or you were with them but recently left. Now, part of you knows that that person is abusive, manipulative, hurtful, and toxic to your life. 
another part of you still wants to believe in the quote good in the abuser or wants to reminisce about the quote good times at the beginning of the relationship or those times that were sprinkled throughout as the abuser dosed you just enough to keep you there, to keep you hoping that things were getting better, hoping that they were changing and hoping that your relationship had a future. When you're in the cognitive dissonance, you'll find that your mind is going back and forth 180 degrees from it's okay to it's not okay, from they love me to they love me not, from this person is amazing and wonderful to this person is abusive and hurtful. Essentially, you're going back and forth from the loving fantasy to the abusive truth. That truth is ugly, and no one really wants to see that. So of course it's easier to go into denial so we can hold on to the fantasy, illusion, and hope. The cognitive dissonance dissolves in a spontaneous breakthrough moment as a result of four practices. Number one, relentlessly facing the truth. That means write the sobriety list with bullet points about every hurtful, manipulative, abusive thing that person ever did since you met them. Then you pull that list out and read it every time your mind wants to indulge in fantasy, illusion, toxic hope, or denial. The list keeps your mind sober in the truth. This is the most important part of the work that you'll do to break free from the cognitive dissonance. Number two, work to integrate the mantra, it wasn't your fault. This sets you off the hook so you stop trying to fix the unfixable. The abuse was never your fault, no matter how much the abuser wanted you to believe that. Number three, label the abuser and the abuse. Use whatever word or label that you're comfortable with. Maybe narcissist, psychopath, sociopath, abuser, manipulator, etc. Don't get hung up on the DSM psychological exact diagnosis. That doesn't matter. What matters is that you recognize the patterns of abuse. You need to label those behavioral patterns and you need to label the abuser with whatever word you're comfortable with. And understand, it's okay to have good judgment. There's a difference between having good judgment and being a judgmental person. Labeling the abuser, labeling the abusive behavior does not make you a judgmental person. Number four, speak your truth with people who understand and support you and go no contact with those who are offended by your truth. People who are more offended by you speaking the truth about the abuse than the abuse itself are probably other abusers. So it's important to seek out allies, to seek out supportive people, and those are usually people who have been through it too because they're the people who truly understand what you're going through. They're the people who believe you. They're the people who support your truth and celebrate you speaking that truth. If you're finding yourself right now in the early phases of stage one of the recovery and you notice that you're still doing that back and forth thing, he loves me, he loves me not, she loves me, she loves me not, then your primary work right now is to practice those four things that I just mentioned in order to help yourself dissolve the cognitive dissonance. Some people dissolve the cognitive dissonance before they leave the abuser, but most often it's shortly after. 
you'll know you're still in the cognitive dissonance when you catch yourself going back and forth in your mind again. One moment, you might be very lucid in telling yourself or others how that person is abusive and their behaviors are unacceptable. Then, before you know it, you're feeling nostalgic for their touch, or maybe you're hoping that they'll finally change, or maybe you can finally have that fantasy life with that person that you always dreamt of. Dissolving the cognitive dissonance is about accepting the external truth about what happened and who the abuser is. That's everything outside yourself. In stage one, the victim stage, you're focused outside yourself. That's okay for right now because this is a phase you're going through before you get to stage two, the survivor stage, when you're able to start looking inward. The external acceptance of truth has to happen so you can stop investing yourself externally in trying to make the impossible work. And instead, you can use that energy to grab the reins of your destiny in order to cross that first threshold and enter stage two as a survivor. You'll sometimes see people years after leaving the abuser still stuck in the victim stage because they haven't been able to look within yet and accept 100% self-responsibility for their life. That's the first threshold that you'll cross from stage one into stage two when you empower yourself and understand it wasn't your fault the abuse that happened and it's your responsibility to do something about it now. If that still sounds like a blame to you or you want to call that victim shaming, then understand that just means you're still stuck in stage one. There's no shame in being a victim. We've all been there. However, It's important to understand that victim is a stage that you pass through. It's not a diagnosis or life sentence. You don't have to stay there. Some people stay in the victim stage because they get narcissistic supply in the form of sympathy from others by being the perpetual victim. Others stay simply because they don't know what's going on, so they keep repeating the same mistakes over and over again without learning the lesson. I spent years, decades really, repeating that cycle over and over again, getting victimized over and over again by different abusers, and sometimes returning to abusers from the past. I didn't have a guide. I didn't have a lighthouse. I didn't have anyone showing me the way. I didn't understand what was going on. My dream is that you don't have to go through what I went through because there is information out there for you. There are guides out there for you and lots of us. But ultimately, the person who decides to do the work to make the changes in your life is you. So first you work on dissolving the cognitive dissonance through the external acceptance of fully recognizing the abuse and the abuser for what they are. Then you can empower yourself into the survivor stage by understanding that it wasn't fair what happened to you, but now you're the only one who can do something about it. In stage two, you're starting to look inward. You're working on radical self-care. You're digging up and unpacking your own unhealthy patterns, some of which were likely with you since childhood. So here's when you work on changing those into behaviors that support your self-healing. 
Stage two is the longest part of the healing journey. It takes a lot of inner work. It takes a lot of dedication and it's hard work. It's not easy. If it was easy, everyone would be doing it. After a while, a turning point happens in stage two. It's not at the end of stage two, but shortly before that. This is the second threshold where you have the opportunity to break the trauma bond to your original abuser. The trauma bond is caused between the victim and the abuser, much like the bond that is formed between a hostage and a captor. This is a survival mechanism for extreme situations like abusive relationships. The trauma bond is also known as the Stockholm Syndrome. There are four criteria that cause this. Number one, a perceived threat to the victim's life. Now, that threat could be physical, like you could be actually afraid they're going to take your life and kill you, Or that threat could be psychological. You could just think that they might kill you. Or you can think that they're going to kill your sense of self, which is a very real fear. Everyone loses their sense of self through the abusive relationships. And if you want to work on that, on reinventing yourself after narcissistic abuse, check out that link in the show notes for a mini course that will help you to create a new sense of self or perhaps a new sense of self for the first time in your life if you grew up in a narcissistic family. The second criteria for the Stockholm Syndrome is an act of perceived kindness. That perceived kindness is what we call love bombing or idealization. This is why the abuser isn't an asshole all the time. It's why they're not always abusing you in that devaluation sort of way. You have to understand there's an abuse cycle. The love bombing and idealization is part of that abuse cycle. That's what locks you in. Number three, isolation from outside perspectives. Abusers will always find a way to isolate you. That could be a physical isolation. They might move you far away from your family and friends, from your support network. They might move you to a really remote place on the planet. They might convince you to get rid of your cell phone or get off the internet so that you lose all contact with that support network. It could be psychological isolation too, where they isolate you so much from your friends and your family that even though they live near you and you could go see them, the abuser has poisoned your mind to think that those people really don't love you, they really don't support you, they don't support your relationship, and you should only trust in the reality of the abuser. That way, you don't go looking for external validation, people to tell you what's going on in that relationship, people to call out the abusive and manipulative behaviors. The fourth criteria for Stockholm Syndrome is a perceived inability to escape. That is the learned helplessness of feeling like there's no way out. In real-life situations, the trauma bond causes the victim to empathize with and defend the abuser. This is why Dr. Patrick Karnas, author of The Betrayal Bond, also calls this insane loyalty. The victim is being loyal to someone who is betraying them. It sounds insane to defend someone who's hurting you, but remember, this isn't caused by the rational, conscious parts of the brain. The trauma bond is caused by the primitive and emotional parts of the brain. The trauma bond causes a glue, which is actually fear, that keeps the victim stuck, repeating the same self-destructive patterns. It's important to acknowledge that this does not mean the victim is stupid. This is not coming from the conscious cognitive parts of the brain. I've worked with clients who had PhDs. 
I've even worked with clients who are therapists with advanced degrees trained to recognize abuse. Abuse goes beyond the cognitive understanding of this is wrong, this is unhealthy, this is not okay for me, and it targets the parts of the brain that are simply concerned with survival. Breaking the trauma bond takes longer than breaking free from the cognitive dissonance. In stage one, we weren't ready to deal with the trauma bond because we weren't ready to look within yet. First, we have to resolve the cognitive dissonance by facing the external acceptance of truth. In stage two, through the process of self-care and self-discovery, that's when we're really able to start looking within and owning self-responsibility. This usually means recognizing the people-pleasing and self-abandoning patterns of codependency. At this point, the idea of self-responsibility doesn't feel like a blame or fault. It feels like empowerment. That's the state that leads you to make powerful changes in your life, ending those old patterns of self-sacrifice so you can keep moving forward in your recovery. Eventually, through this process, you'll be able to enter stage three, the thriver stage. Before that happens, there's a turning point in stage two, a confrontation with your false self and that which holds the ultimate power over your life. This moment will usually come about through an interpersonal experience. The other person or people involved will be the catalyst for the opportunity of transformation as long as you don't get caught making it about the other person, which is going back to the external focus of stage one. Here in stage two, in order to break the trauma bond, you'll need to turn your gaze inward and recognize what inside you that person is triggering. It's usually about a feeling that's connected to the core wound that you've carried since childhood, whether you were raised by a narcissistic parent or not. The crisis that appears at this point in the journey is actually an opportunity. You'll need to face the external truth if you want to break the trauma bond. This means connecting to your true self. Your authenticity is the sword that cuts through the denial and sets you free once and for all. As you choose your authentic self in this moment of opportunity, you'll be able to own who you are. The choice at this threshold is between your false self or your authenticity. Your ego is going to want to make it about the other person or something outside yourself, and that will lead you astray back to repeat earlier stages of the recovery process. If instead you're able to look honestly within yourself and recognize what in you you want to shift, that's when you'll be able to drop the blanket of false security and stand bravely in your authenticity. The false security is based on the stage one beliefs and patterns that you adopted back then in order to feel safe. This could be about people-pleasing, silencing your truth, sacrificing your self-worth in order to maintain a relationship, overcompensating by swinging a sword at everyone and everything that comes at you, expecting the worst, expecting abuse around every corner. It could be about focusing externally for approval and validation or hiding who you truly are to fit in, or telling yourself that everything is okay when it's not. At this point, something inside you has to go so you can step into your authenticity and move forward. Until this turning point, you likely had a lot of fear about feeling your core wound, so you used distractions and addictions in order to mask the feeling and keep it suppressed. 
It could have been food, alcohol, drugs, shopping, gambling, porn, social media, video games, TV, caretaking people, or even workaholism. As you allow yourself to feel and face that which was holding the greatest power over your life, and you choose your authenticity instead of the old ego defense mechanisms, that's when the trauma bond spontaneously breaks and the shame dies with it. By the way, if you want to work on upgrading the five primitive defense mechanisms that are sabotaging your life, check out the mini course on my website called Ending Self-Sabotage. I'll also put the link in the show notes. Abuse programming teaches you to internalize a sense of false shame. You end up carrying the shame of the abuse that does not belong to you. When you swallow that, it makes you sick. That shame is not your burden to carry. That shame also distorts your sense of self-worth and replaces it with the feeling of worthlessness or not being good enough. The acceptance that takes place as the trauma bond breaks is self-acceptance, the inward acceptance. Self-acceptance and self-worth are the opposite of shame. This turning point where the trauma bond breaks might feel almost anticlimactic after everything you've been through. It's like when you get used to the noise the refrigerator is making so you don't hear it and then suddenly it stops and that silence is jarring. When the fear and the shame of the trauma bond suddenly disappear, it's like that. Following the spontaneous turning point moment, is a delicate time where you will be tested based on the law of verification to see if you really want that new life or if you want to go back to who you were in the trauma bond. Expect these tests because they will come. Your response to those tests is how you tell the universe that you're done being abused and manipulated. After breaking the original trauma bond, you'll need to burn the bridges that lead you back to the people and situations that hurt you. If you don't, you'll risk getting back in the trauma bond and going backwards into earlier stages of recovery. I stumbled around in the darkness of that unproductive loop for years before I realized what was going on and how to set myself free. If you're wondering if you're still in the trauma bond, here are some common signs. You're still emotionally pulled into the love bombing and you can't recognize the shallowness, emptiness, and hollowness of false praise. You still have hope for the future with an abusive person, hoping they'll change or apologize. You're still defending the abuser in your head, rationalizing, minimizing, justifying their behavior. Or maybe you're even defending the abuser to other people. You still feel like there's no way out. You're still afraid of the abuser. You're still hoping for or accepting contact from people who hurt you. You're still helping people who hurt you out of guilt or obligation. You're still extending trust to people who've shown you again and again they're not trustworthy. You're still trying to convince abusive people that something is wrong with their behavior, yet they're not accepting self-responsibility. You're still attracted to new abusive people. It's the pull of familiarity because your nervous system is still programmed to recognize abuse as love and home, and it will be until you train your nervous system otherwise. Eventually, you'll find that you'll need to break the trauma bond with the original abuser in your life, and that's usually a family member. When you do that, like dominoes, all the other trauma bonds that formed with abusers in your adult life will break too. 
Now, there is a small percentage of people that didn't grow up in a family like this and ended up in these abusive relationships as adults because they had similar wounds of loneliness or rejection or abandonment as children. After you break that original trauma bond, you'll notice that you are repulsed by manipulators and abusers, even when they're doing the love bombing tactics that you used to fall so easily for. Now you see that and you just feel icky. These are signs of growth. You can't blame yourself for the people who are attracted to you. You'll attract the good, the bad, the ugly because that's what's out there. The key is who are you accepting and tolerating into your life? That's what you have control of, who you let in and who you let stay in your life. After breaking the trauma bond, you'll no longer accept manipulation and abuse unconsciously. As soon as another covert manipulator or abuser reveals themselves, you're done. It's no longer attractive to you to keep trying to teach someone how to act like a decent human being. You're no longer trying to resolve past lessons of abuse with new abusive people. Your self-worth is growing, your self-trust is growing, and you're moving along toward the thriving stage. Understanding these concepts about the cognitive dissonance and the trauma bond helps us understand why victims stay with abusers or why they go back and give them another chance. I hope this episode helped you to have more compassion for yourself for staying, for taking the person back when they made empty promises of change, for having hope that things would be any different. Don't beat yourself up for that. Also, don't hang out around people who make you feel stupid for your past choices either. People who continually remind you of how you failed are usually people who like to see you down so they can feel superior. Sometimes they can disguise that ever so cleverly as help or altruism. If you keep going to abusive people for help, you're only strengthening the trauma bond. Remember, the nature of transformation is that it's not on our timing. It comes in spontaneous moments where the breakdown leads to the breakthrough. You might want to dissolve the cognitive dissonance and break the trauma bond right now. And while you need to do the work to help yourself get there, you also can't force the spontaneous moment of breakthrough. The moments happen when they do. You can best prepare for the opportunity by doing consistent work over time so you'll be ready when the moment shows up. All the effort and hard work that you put in is your training for the spontaneous moments of transformation when you make quantum leaps forward. If you want to hear more about these topics and how they fit into the recovery process, check out my book, The Journey, A Roadmap for Self-Healing After Narcissistic Abuse. You can get a paper copy or the digital version on Amazon. The direct link is in the show notes. If you're looking for a therapist in your area who can help you recover after the trauma of abuse, check out the link in the show notes for BetterHelp, an online platform for modern day therapy. When you click that link, it'll take you to an intake questionnaire. Be sure to click the one that says trauma and abuse is one of the things that you want to work on so they can match you with a therapist in your area who's experienced in that topic. For those of you who are just starting on your journey of recovery, be sure to get your free copy of my quick start guide to recovery after narcissistic abuse on the homepage, www.innerintegration.com. This quick read ebook will help you put into place the three most important steps so you can launch yourself on your way to recovery. 
Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Inner Integration Podcast. I hope you learned something today that helps you to see from a new perspective and to start using new tools so you can take action and transform your life after narcissistic abuse. Remember, you are enough. You matter. And you got this. If you liked this episode and want to hear more, subscribe to get automatic updates on new podcast episodes as they're released. Visit us online at innerintegration.com where you get instant access to a free quick start guide to recovery after narcissistic abuse upon entering your name and email. You'll also find there digital courses that have already helped thousands of people move through the self-healing process. Get loads more free inner integration content to help you heal after narcissistic abuse on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. Big hug to you.